to Sleep with Gina Marie. I'm Gina, and Marie well, is finishing a much-deserved vacation. Oh, but I did learn this. I'm told there will be, hmm, uh, quote, some interesting information about those key words when Marie returns. All right, well, we'll see. Oh, I missed all of you these last couple of weeks, but here's what. I got to spend time with my family, and I hope you did some relaxing and something enjoyable as well. Well, I know you listen to classic stories on Fast Asleep. I'm very thankful for that. I'm also thankful for those really wonderful comments. It just Holds me over when I read some of the wonderful things you guys are saying. Thank you. I am grateful for your likes and I'm grateful for your subscribing. Thank you. Well, there are many of you all over the world. You live all over the world. I live in the United States where it's cold now. And it's going to be even colder in the setting for today's story. I mentioned this story, by the way, when I brought you another of the same author's works. Um, that would be The Piece of String, episode 266. Great comments on that one, by the way. Thank you. So, novelist, poet, playwright, master of the short story, no question, Henri-René Albert Guy de Maupassant. And he has inspired many other authors, and one we'll speak of in just a moment. He quickly produced one masterpiece after another, despite, well, what's a word for it? Um, muddling, muddling his brain with alcohol and drugs. Oh, and his free moments were spent indulging in an endless amount of, let's call it, relations with actresses, dancers, prostitutes, and women of many professions. Regardless of his dalliances, you can't deny he had a very great talent and a very practical sense of business. Well, it's this combination that made him very wealthy. The decade from which our story today came is said to be his most fertile. About today's story... I've done a lot of investigation on this one. One biographer after another insists that our story today is what inspired Stephen King to write The Shining. And there are many similarities. Stephen King himself, however has not made the same claim. To date, let me know what you think. Okay, it was published in 1886. Our version today has been translated by Albert M.C. McMaster. So, tuck in everybody. From Guy de Maupassant. The Inn. Resembling, in appearance, all the wooden hostelries of the high Alps, situated at the foot of glaciers in the barren rocky gorges that intersect the summits of the mountains, the inn of Schwarenbach serves as a resting place for travelers crossing the Jemmy Pass. It remains open for six months in the year and is inhabited by the family of Jean Auxerre. Then, 
As soon as the snow begins to fall and to fill the valley, so as to make the road down to Loche impassable, the father and his three sons go away and leave the house in charge of the old guide Gaspar Hari with the young guide Uri Kunzi <laughs> and Sam, the great mountain dog. The two men and the dog remain till the spring in their snowy prison with nothing before their eyes except the immense white slopes of the Baumhorn, a mountain in Switzerland with the elevation of more than 12,000 feet. They are surrounded by light glistening summits and are shut in, blocked up and buried by the snow which rises around them and which envelops, binds and crushes the little house which lies piled on the roof, covering the windows and blocking up the door. It was the day on which the Auxerre family were going to return to Loge, as winter was approaching, and the descent was becoming dangerous. Three mules started first, laden with baggage, and led by the three sons. Then the mother, Jean Auxerre, and her daughter, Louise, mounted a fourth mule and set off in their turn. And the father followed them, accompanied by the two men in charge who were to escort the family as far as the brow of the descent. First of all, they passed round the small lake, which was now frozen over, at the bottom of the mass of rocks which stretched in front of the inn. And then they followed the valley, which was dominated on all sides by the snow-covered summits. A ray of sunlight fell into that little white, glistening, frozen desert and illuminated it with a cold and dazzling flame. No living thing appeared among this ocean of mountains. There was no motion in this immeasurable solitude, and no noise disturbed the profound silence. By degrees, the young guide, Uri Kunzi, a tall, long-legged Swiss, left old man Auxerre and old Gaspar behind in order to catch up the mule which bore the two women. The younger one looked at him as he approached, and appeared to be calling him with her sad eyes. She was a young, fair-haired little peasant girl whose milk-white cheeks and pale hair looked as if they had lost their color by their long abode amid the ice. When he got up to the animal she was riding, he put his hand on the crupper the saddle strap, and relaxed his speed. Mother Ozaire <laughs> began to talk to him, enumerating with the minutest details all that he would have to attend to during the winter. It was the first time that he was going to stay up there while old Hari 
had already spent 14 winters amid the snow at the inn of Schwarenbach. Uri Kunzi listened without appearing to understand and looked incessantly at the girl. From time to time, he replied, Yes, Madame Osir, but his thoughts seemed far away, and his calm features remained unmoved. They reached Lake Dobe, whose broad frozen surface extended to the end of the valley. On the right, one saw the black pointed rocky summits of the Doban Horn, with an elevation of over 9,600 feet. It was beside the enormous moraines. That's the material left behind by a moving glacier of the Lomerne Glacier, above which rose the Wildstrubel. As they approached the Jemmy Pass, where the descent of Loesch begins, they oh, suddenly beheld the immense horizon of the Alps of the Valais, from which the broad, deep valley of the Rhone River separated them. In the distance, there was a group of white, unequal, flat or pointed mountain summits which glistened in the sun. The Michebel, with its two peaks, the huge group of the Weisshorn, the heavy Brunighorn, the lofty and formidable pyramid of Mount Servan, oh, that slayer of men, and the Don Blanche, that monstrous coquette. Then, beneath them, in a tremendous hole, at the bottom of a terrific abyss, they perceived Loge, where houses looked as grains of sand which had been thrown into that enormous crevice that is ended and closed by the jemmy and which opens down below on the Rhone. The mule stopped at the edge of the path which winds and turns continually doubling backward and then fantastically and strangely along the side of the mountain as far as the almost invisible little village at its feet. The women jumped into the snow and the two men joined them. Well, Father Ozair said, goodbye and keep up your spirits. Till next year, my friends. And old Hari replied, eh, till next year. They embraced each other. And then Madame Ozair, in her turn, offered her cheek. And the girl did the same. When Uri Kunzi's turn came, he whispered in Louise's ear, Do not forget those up yonder. And she replied, No, in such a low voice that he guessed what she had said without hearing it. Well, adieu. Jean Auxerre repeated, and don't fall ill. And going before the two women, he commenced the descent. And soon all three disappeared 
at the first turn in the road, while the two men returned to the inn at Schwarenbach. They walked slowly, side by side, without speaking. It was over, and they would be alone together for four or five months. Then Gaspar Hari began to relate his life last winter. He had remained with Mikhail Canole, who was too old now to stand it. For an accident might happen during that long solitude. They had not been dull, however. The only thing was to make up one's mind to it from the first, and in the end would find plenty of distraction, games, and other means of whiling away the time. Ulrikunzi listened to him with his eyes on the ground, for in his thoughts he was following those who were descending to the village. They soon came in sight of the inn, which was, however, scarcely visible. So small did it look. A black speck at the foot of that enormous billow of snow. And when they opened the door, Sam, the great curly dog, began to romp round them. Come, my boy. Old Gaspar said, We have no women now, so we must get our own dinner ready. Go and peel the potatoes. And they both sat down on wooden stools and began to prepare the soup. The next morning seemed very long to Kunzi. Old Hari smoked and spat on the hearth, while the young men, man, looked out of the window at the snow-covered mountain opposite the house. In the afternoon, he went out, and going over yesterday's ground again, he looked for the traces of the mule that had carried the two women. Then, when he reached the Jemmy Pass, he laid himself down on his stomach and looked at Loche. The village, in its rocky pit, was not yet buried under the snow, from which it was sheltered by the pine woods that protected it on all sides. Its low houses looked like paving stones in a large meadow from above, Osair's little daughter was there now in one of those gray-colored houses in which Ulrikunzi was too far away to be able to make them out separately. Oh, how he would have liked to go down while he was yet able. But the sun had disappeared behind the lofty crest of the Wildstrubel, and the young man returned to the chalet. Daddy Hari <laughs> was smoking, and when he saw his mate come in, he proposed a game of cards to him, and they sat down opposite each other on either side of the table. They played for a long time, a simple game called Brisk. And then they had supper and went to bed. The following days were like the first, bright and cold, 
without any fresh snow. Old Gaspar spent his afternoons in watching the eagles and other rare birds which ventured on those frozen heights, while Uri returned regularly to the Jemmy Pass to look at the village. Then they played cards, dice or dominoes, and lost and won a trifle just to create an interest in the game. One morning, Hari, who was up first, called his companion a moving, deep, and light cloud of white spray was falling on them noiselessly and was, by degrees, burying them under a thick, heavy coverlet of foam. That lasted four days and four nights. It was necessary to free the door and the windows and to dig out a passage and to cut steps to get over this frozen powder which a 12 hours frost had made as hard as the granite of the moraines. They lived like prisoners and did not venture outside their abode. They had divided their duties, which they performed regularly. Uri Kunzi undertook the scouring, washing, and everything that belonged to cleanliness. He also chopped up the wood, while Gaspar Hari did the cooking and attended to the fire. Their regular and monotonous work was interrupted by long games at cards or dice, and they never quarreled, but were always calm and placid. They were never seen impatient or ill-humored, nor did they ever use hard words they had laid in a stock of patience for their wintering on the top of the mountain. Sometimes old Gaspar took his rifle and went after chamois, goat or antelope-like animals, and occasionally he killed one. And then there was a feast in the inn at Schwarenbach, <laughs> and they reveled in fresh meat. One morning, he went out as usual. The thermometer outside marked 18 degrees of frost, and as the sun had not yet risen, the hunter hoped to surprise the animals at the approaches to the Wildstrubel. And Uri, being alone, remained in bed until ten o'clock. Uh, he was of a sleepy nature, but he would not have dared to give way to his inclination in the presence of the old guide, who was ever an early riser. He breakfasted leisurely with Sam who also spent his days and nights in sleeping in front of the fire. And then, then, he felt low-spirited and even frightened at the solitude and was seized by a longing for his daily game of cards, as one is by the craving of a confirmed habit. And so he went out, to meet his companion, who was to return at four o'clock. Oh, the snow had leveled the whole deep valley, filled up the crevices, obliterated all signs of the two lakes, and covered the rocks. So 
that between the high summits there was nothing but an immense, white, regular, dazzling, and frozen surface. For three weeks, Ulri had not been to the edge of the precipice from which he had looked down on the village. When he wanted to go there before climbing the slopes which led to Wildstrugel, Loesch was now also covered by the snow, and the houses could scarcely be distinguished, covered as they were by that white cloak. Then, turning to the right, he reached the Lomere Glacier. He went along with a mountaineer's long strides, striking the snow, which was as hard as a rock, with his iron-pointed stick. And with his piercing eyes, he looked for the little black moving speck in the distance on that enormous white expanse. When he reached the end of the glacier, he stopped and asked himself whether the old man had taken that road. And then he began to walk along the moraines with rapid and uneasy steps. The day was declining. The snow was assuming a rosy tint, and a dry, frozen wind blew, blew in rough gusts over its crystal surface. Ulri uttered a long, shrill, vibrating call. His voice sped through the death-like silence in which the mountains were sleeping. It reached the distance across profound and motionless waves of glacial foam, like the cry of a bird across the waves of the sea. And then it died away, and nothing answered it. He began to walk again. The sun had sunk yonder behind the mountain tops, which were still purple with the reflection from the sky. But the depths of the valley were becoming gray. And suddenly, the young man felt frightened. It seemed to him as if the silence, the cold, the solitude, the winter death of these mountains were taking possession of him, were going to stop and to freeze his blood, to make his limbs grow stiff, and to turn him into a motionless and frozen object. And he set off running, fleeing toward his dwelling. The old man, he thought, would have returned during his absence. He had taken another road. He would no doubt be sitting before the fire with a dead chamois at his feet. He soon came in sight of the inn. Stay with us. We'll be right back. have returned during his absence. Oh, he had taken another road. He would, no doubt, be sitting before the fire 
with a dead chamois at his feet. He soon came in sight of the inn, but no smoke rose from it. Ulri walked faster and opened the door. Sam ran up to him to greet him, but Gaspar Hari had not returned. Kunzi, in his alarm, turned round suddenly as if he had expected to find his comrade hidden in a corner. Then he relighted the fire and made the soup, hoping every moment to see the old man come in. From time to time, he went out to see if he were not coming. It was quite night now. That wan Livid night of the mountains, lighted by a thin yellow crescent moon just disappearing behind the mountain tops. Then the young man went in and sat down to warm his hands and feet while he pictured to himself every possible accident. Gaspar might have broken a leg, have fallen into a crevasse, taken a false step and dislocated his ankle. And perhaps he was lying on the snow, overcome and stiff with the cold, in agony of mind, lost, and perhaps shouting for help, calling with all his might in the silence of the night. But where? Oh, the mountain was so vast, so rugged, so dangerous, especially at that time of the year, that it would have required ten or twenty guides to walk for a week in all directions to find a man in that immense space. Ulri Kunzi, however, made up his mind to set out with Sam if Gaspar did not return by one in the morning. And he made his preparations. He put provisions for two days into a bag, took his steel climbing iron, tied a long, thin, strong rope round his waist, and looked to see that his iron-shod stick and his axe, which served to cut steps in the ice, were in order. And then he waited. The fire was burning on the hearth. The great dog was snoring in front of it, and the clock was ticking as regularly as a heart beating in its resounding wooden case. He waited, with his ears on the alert for distant sounds, and he shivered when the wind blew against the roof and the walls. It struck twelve, and he trembled. Then, frightened and shivering, he put some water on the fire so that he might have some hot coffee before starting. And when the clock struck one, he got up, woke Sam, opened the door, and went off in the direction of the Wildstrubel. For five hours he mounted, scaling the rocks by means of his climbing irons, cutting into the ice, advancing continually, and occasionally hauling up the dog 
who remained below at the foot of some slope that was too steep for him, by means of the rope. It was about six o'clock when he reached one of the summits, to which old Gaspar often came after Chamois, and he waited till it should be daylight. The sky was growing pale overhead, and a strange light, springing nobody could tell whence, suddenly illuminated the immense ocean of pale mountain summits, which extended for a hundred leagues around him. One might have said that this vague brightness arose from the snow itself and spread abroad in space. By degrees, the highest distant summits assumed a delicate pink color and the red sun appeared behind the ponderous giants of the Bernese Alps. Uri Kunzi set off again, walking like a hunter, bent over, looking for tracks, and saying to his dog, Seek, old fellow, seek. He was descending the mountain now, scanning the depths closely, and from time to time, shouting, uttering a loud, prolonged cry, which soon died away in that silent vastness. Then he put his ear to the ground to listen. He thought he could distinguish a voice, and he began to run and shouted again. But he heard nothing more and sat down, exhausted and in despair. Toward midday, he breakfasted and gave Sam, who was as tired as himself, something to eat also. And then he recommenced his search. When evening came, he was still walking, and he had walked more than 30 miles over the mountains. As he was too far away to return home and too tired to drag himself along any farther, he dug a hole in the snow and crouched in it with his dog under a blanket which he had brought with him. And the man and the dog lay side by side, trying to keep warm, but frozen to the marrow, nevertheless. Ulri scarcely slept, his mind haunted by visions, and his limbs shaking with cold. Day was breaking when he got up. Oh, his legs were as stiff as iron bars and his spirits so low that he was ready to cry with anguish while his heart was beating so that he almost fell over with agitation when he thought he heard a noise. Suddenly, he imagined that he also was going to die of cold in the midst of this vast solitude, and the terror of such a death roused his energies and gave him renewed vigor. He was descending toward the inn, falling down and getting up again and followed at a distance by Sam. 
who was limping on three legs. And they did not reach Schwarenbach until four o'clock in the afternoon. The house was empty. And the young man made a fire, had something to eat, and went to sleep. Oh, so worn out that he did not think of anything more. He slept for a long time, for a very long time, an irresistible sleep. But suddenly, a voice, a cry, a name, Ori, aroused him from his profound torpor and made him sit up in bed. Had he been dreaming? Was it one of those strange appeals which cross the dreams of disquieted minds? No, no, he heard it still, that reverberating cry which had entered his ears and remained in his flesh to the tips of his sinewy fingers. Certainly, somebody had cried out and called, Ori! There was somebody there, near the house. Oh, there could be no doubt of that. And he opened the door and shouted, Is it you, Gaspar? With all the strength of his lungs, there was no reply, no murmur, no groan, nothing. It was quite dark, and the snow looked wan. The wind had risen, that icy wind that cracks the rocks and leaves nothing alive on those deserted heights, and it came in sudden gusts, gusts which were more parching and more deadly than the burning wind of the desert. And again, Uri shouted, Gaspar! 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 And then he waited again. Everything was silent on the mountain. Then he shook with terror and with a bound, he was inside the inn. He shut and bolted the door and then fell into a chair, trembling all over. For he felt certain that his comrade had called him at the moment he was expiring. Oh, he was sure of that, as sure as one is of being alive or of eating a, a piece of bread. Old Gaspar Hari had been dying for two days and three nights somewhere in some hole in one of those deep, untrodden ravines whose whiteness is more sinister than subterranean darkness. He had been dying for two days and three nights, and he had just then died, thinking of his comrade, his soul, almost before it was released, had taken its flight to the inn where Uri was sleeping, and it had called him by that terrible and mysterious power which the spirits of the dead have to haunt the living. That voiceless soul had cried to the worn-out soul of the sleeper. It had uttered its last farewell or its reproach, or its curse.
on the man who had not searched carefully enough. And Uri felt that it was there, quite close to him, behind the wall, behind the door which he had just fastened. Oh, it was wandering about like a night bird which lightly touches a lighted window with his wings. And the terrified young man was ready to scream with horror. He wanted to run away, but did not dare to go out. He did not dare, and he should never dare to do it in the future, for that phantom would remain there, day and night, round the inn, as long as the old man's body was not recovered and had not been deposited in the consecrated earth of a churchyard. When it was daylight, Kunzi recovered some of his courage at the return of the bright sun. He prepared his meal, gave his dog some food, and then remained motionless on a chair, tortured at heart, as he thought of the old man lying on the snow. And then, as soon as night once more covered the mountains, new terrors assailed him. He now walked up and down the dark kitchen, which was scarcely lighted by the flame of one candle, and he walked from one end of it to the other, with great strides, listening listening whether the terrible cry of the other night would again break the dreary silence outside. He felt himself alone, an unhappy man, as no man had ever been alone before. He was alone in this immense desert of snow, alone, five thousand feet above the inhabited earth, above human habitation, above that stirring, noisy, palpitating life, alone under an icy sky. A mad longing impelled him to run away, no matter where, to get down to Loesch by flinging himself over the precipice. He did not even dare to open the door, as he felt sure that the other, the dead man, would bar his road so that he might not be obliged to remain up there alone. Toward midnight, tired with walking, worn out by grief and fear, he, at last, fell into a doze in his chair, for he was afraid of his bed, as one is of a haunted spot. But suddenly, the strident cry of the other evening pierced his ears, and it was so shrill that Ulri stretched out his arms to repulse the ghost and fell backward with his chair. Sam, who was awakened by the noise, began to howl, as frightened dogs do howl, and he walked all about the house, trying to find out where the danger came from. When he got to the door, he sniffed beneath it, smelling vigorously, with his coat bristling and his tail stiff while he growled angrily.
Kunzi, who was terrified, jumped up and holding his chair by one leg, he cried, Don't come in! Don't come in or I, I shall kill you! And the dog, excited by this threat, barked angrily at that invisible enemy who defied his master's voice. By degrees, however, he quieted down and came back and stretched himself in front of the fire. But he was uneasy and kept his head up and growled between his teeth. Ulri, in turn, recovered his senses. But as he felt faint with terror, he went and got a bottle of brandy out of the sideboard and drank off several glasses, one after another, at a gulp. His ideas became vague, his courage revived, and a feverish glow ran through his veins. He ate scarcely anything the next day and limited himself to alcohol. And so he lived for several days like a drunken brute. As soon as he thought of Gaspar Hari, he began to drink again and went on drinking until he fell to the ground, overcome by intoxication. And there he remained, lying on his face, dead drunk, his limbs benumbed and snoring loudly. But scarcely had he digested the maddening and burning liquor than the same cry, Ori, woke him like a bullet piercing his brain. And he got up, still staggering, stretching out his hands to save himself from falling and calling to Sam to help him. And the dog, who appeared to be going mad like his master, rushed to the door, scratched it with his claws, and gnawed it with his long white teeth while the young man, with his head thrown back, drank the brandy in draughts, as if it had been cold water, so that it might, by and by, send his thoughts, his frantic terror, and his memory to sleep again. In three weeks, he had consumed all his stock of ardent spirits. But his continual drunkenness only lulled his terror, which awoke more furiously than ever as soon as it was impossible for him to calm it. His fixed idea then which had been intensified by a month of drunkenness and which was continually increasing in his absolute solitude, penetrated him like a gimlet. Not the drink, a tool that bores holes. He now walked about the house like a wild beast in its cage, putting his ear to the door to listen if the other were there, and defying him through the wall. Then, as soon as he dozed, overcome by fatigue, he heard the voice, which made him leap to his feet. At last, one night, as cowards do when driven to extremities, he sprang to the door and opened it to see who was calling him and to force him to keep quiet. 
Oh, but such a gust of cold wind blew into his face that it chilled him to the bone, and he closed and bolted the door again. Immediately. Without noticing that Sam had rushed out. Then, as he was shivering with cold, he threw some wood on the fire and sat down in front of it to warm himself. But suddenly, he started, for somebody was scratching at the wall and crying. In desperation, he called out, Go away! But was answered by another long, sorrowful wail. Then all his remaining senses forsook him from sheer fright. He repeated, Go away! And turned around to try to find some corner in which to hide, while the other person went round the house, still crying and rubbing against the wall. Ulri went to the oak sideboard, which was full of plates and dishes and provisions, and lifting it up with superhuman strength, he dragged it to the door so as to form a barricade. Then, piling up all the rest of the furniture, the mattresses and chairs, he stopped up the windows, as one does when assailed by an enemy. But the person outside, now, uttered long, plaintive, mournful groans, to which the young man replied by similar groans. And thus, days and nights passed, without their ceasing to howl at each other. The one was continually walking round the house and scraped the walls with his nails so vigorously that it seemed as if he wished to destroy them, while the other, inside, followed all his movements, stooping down and holding his ear to the walls, and replying to all his appeals with terrible cries. One evening, however, Uri heard nothing more, and he sat down, so overcome by fatigue, that he went to sleep immediately, and awoke in the morning without a thought, without any recollection of what had happened, just as if his head had been emptied during his heavy sleep. But he felt hungry, and he ate. The winter was over, and the Jemmy Pass was practicable again. So, the Osair family started off to return to their inn. As soon as they had reached the top of the ascent, the women mounted their mule and spoke about the two men whom they would meet again shortly. They were indeed rather surprised that neither of them had come down a few days before. As soon as the road was open, in order to tell them <laughs> all about their long winter sojourn. At last, however, they saw the inn, still covered with snow like a quilt. The door and the window were closed, but a little smoke was coming out of the chimney, which reassured old Osaire. On going up to the door, however, he saw the skeleton of an animal which had been torn to pieces by the eagles. 
a large skeleton lying on its side. They all looked closely at it. And the mother said, Oh, that must be Sam. And then she shouted, Hi, Gaspar! A cry from the interior of the house answered her, and such a sharp cry that one might have thought some animal had uttered it. Old Osaire repeated, Hi, Gaspar! And they heard another cry, similar to the first. Then the three men, the father and the two sons, tried to open the door, but it resisted their efforts. From the empty cow stall, they took a beam to serve as a battering ram and hurled it against the door with all their might. The wood gave way and the boards flew into splinters. Then the house was shaken by a loud voice. And inside, behind the sideboard, which was overturned, they saw a man standing upright with his hair falling on his shoulders and a beard descending to his breast with shining eyes and nothing but rags to cover him. They did not recognize him, but Louise Osaire exclaimed, it, it is Ulri, mother. And her mother declared that it was Ulri, although his hair was white. He allowed them to go up to him and to touch him, but he did not reply to any of their questions, and they were obliged to take him to Loge, where the doctors found that he was mad, and nobody ever found out what had become of his companion. Little Louise Osaire nearly died that summer of decline, which the physicians attributed to the cold air of the mountains. Introduction information for this episode 
is again from Esther Lombardi at Thought Company and other sources in our show notes. Music this week is from Martin Zerny with his Sparkling Dewdrop, Fading Angel of My Soul, Tears of Solitude, A Rainy Night Hope, Humming Anguish, Undone, and (laughs) one more cheery title, Decimated Hopes. And also, I am thrilled to add Into Dust from the very talented Mazzy Star. Remember, you can reach me at Fast Asleep with Gina Marie 44 at gmail.com or you can always find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Oh, and please, don't forget, keep us here for you by your comments, your likes, and by subscribing. Thank you so much for listening. Keyword, descent. Yeah. Mm-hmm.